So I've been asked to uh, speak to you about this book, the Isha Upanishad. I thought first we should, uh, I was, we're supposed to talk about the introduction and the uh, uh, invocation. It's good to start with a little chanting. So if you turn to, we have the same page, page 13 is the beginning of the invocation. So we have several different printings here. Is it 13 on that one too? Yeah. So let's uh, just, just do one, one thing. Uh, I, how many of you are familiar with reading Sanskrit translation or little? Okay, well, uh, okay I'll, I'll say each word and then you say it after me and then we'll do one of these lines at a time, potters at a time, okay? That'll just be good for us to do this. Then we'll find out later what it means. <laughs> so just say after me. Om. Om. Purnam. Purnam. Ada. Ada. Purnam. Purnam. Idam. Idam. Purnat. Purnat. Purnam. Purnam. Udachyate. Udachyate. Purnasya, Purnasya, Purnam, Purnam, Adaya, Adaya, Purnam, Purnam, Eva Vashishyate, Eva Vashishyate. Yeah, so the only thing you need to know that's not obvious is the C is always like a CH in this transliteration system. And there's two different kinds of SHs, one with a cute accent mark, one with a subscript dot. Don't worry about the difference. <laughs> okay. But otherwise, it's pretty much you got. Okay. So now we'll do the line together responsibly. Om Purnamada Purnamidam Om Purnamada Purnamidam Purnat Purnamudachyate Purnat Purnamudachyate Purnasya Purnamadaya Purnasya Purnamadaya Purnameva Vashishyate Purnameva Vashishyate So uh, this is uh, uh, the Isha Upanishad, the uh, Prabhupada, the, the introduction we're going to talk about, the uh, teachings of the Vedas. He says, tells what are the what are the Vedas? This is one of the books, of the Vedas, the the Upanishads are the kind of final, ultimate philosophical knowledge of the Vedas are in the Upanishads. And, uh, and uh, the study of the teachings of the Upanishad is called Vedanta. That's what it means, because Veda, which as Prabhupada points out, the word means knowledge, and then Anta, conclusion or end of the Vedas. So the study of, the, and that means the Upanishads, because the Vedas, there's the, 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 the Samhitas, the hymns of the Vedas, and then the, the Brahmanas, uh, reflections on uh, different activities, and finally there's the Upanishads. And you're supposed to, when you advance in Vedic science, you end up with the Upanishads, and then 
then to to study the teachings of the Upanishads and reconcile them and put them all together. That's that's Vedanta. Uh, that, that, that's what it is. So this is the the Isha Upanishad, uh, uh, and uh, uh, so that's why Prabhupada has put at the beginning of this book uh, transcription, edited transcription of a lecture. Uh, what are the Vedas? And notice the word he says the. Veda means knowledge. There's a Sanskrit verb, vit, uh, which the verb to know. So uh, knowledge is Veda. Transformation of vit comes from, derived from vit. So people are liable to think, you know, oh yeah, the Ishupanishads belongs to the Vedas, and the Vedas are the scripture of the Hindu religion. But Prabhupada denies those categories <laughs> uh, altogether. Uh, uh, to the the people that 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 heard it and taught it, it was just knowledge. That's all. It's not 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 scripture. Not anything. If to us it seems like religion, uh, well, you know, the category of religion is really a modern. Category. It's an artifact of modernity, uh, of secularization, that there's a difference between my religion and my life. In America, you can be as religious as you want to be, just, just make sure it stays in its place. You know, we, don't, we really don't want it involved in the really serious business of government making money and stuff like that. So we, we, we are a sec- that's what secular means. I mean, you can be religious, but... It stays. It stays in its stays in its place. And uh, Wilford Cantwell Smith wrote a very interesting book called *The Meaning and End of Religion*, where he, he professor at Harvard, actually a Christian, but then encountered Islam and started to understand what Islam was about. And Islam basically just means surrender. And he could recommend. He he could recognize that from his own Christian teachings. And really, when you came down to it, you know, there wasn't like a, something unrecognizable and alien alien in this alien religion. Uh, uh, so, Prophet is making here a, a similar point. This is simply knowledge, uh, and one of our impediments, I think, to to understanding it is. It's not taught anywhere like that. You know, you study it to study a scripture of a, of a religion. Uh, and, and what we mean by knowledge is basically technology. Uh, that's what knowledge is. Although, even in the West, you know, Plato didn't regard that as knowledge. What he regarded as knowledge was, was something else. So this is... Uh, so Prabhupada's idea is that this is Vedas. Now, there's this notion that Prabhupada deal with is that, that it's revealed. So that means, oh, you accept it on authority. Uh, but one of the points that you should all notice is just how much we accept on authority. Almost 99% of what we know is accepted on authority. We don't, in fact... <laughs> It's the thing that just everybody knows without even discussing it. That's the, the most powerful, the things that are never even discussed. I know um, I, 
spent a lot of time in academics studying philosophy, and the real thing to do is to find out if you're studying somebody's presentational philosophy, those ideas that he never states. Because, oh yeah, everybody just knows that. And those are always the most powerful ideas. And they're the things, how do you know that it's true? Well, just everyone knows that. You know, there's just... Uh, so there's a whole, there's a, you know, if you actually see what we know directly, uh, it, it very little, just a very small part. So the idea of receiving knowledge from authority, uh, we just have people we trust. The New York Times, just the teachers. They, they say in, in, in India, the, the Adi Guru, the first guru, is your mother. Uh, you learn all this stuff, you know, as a child, you, you don't know anything, and you find your way around the world and everything by, by, by authority. Uh, and uh, and uh, then later on you may tr distrust authorities, and we do, but you can't get rid of the principle uh, that, that you have an authority. So here the, the Vedas are, are revealed. But on the other hand, uh, uh, to say that something is revealed uh, is not necessarily to mean that you're an idiot and you just accept things on blind faith. Anyway, Prabhupada is first of all saying something about uh, knowledge and that the he says there's a difference between a liberated soul and a conditioned soul. Now, there's a, there's a new idea for a lot of people. <laughs> that, uh, but uh, let's just say, he mentions these four defects that all of us in the material world in our sort of uh, uh, what seems to be our natural state is there, these four defects to make mistakes. And the older you get, the more, mis the more history of mistakes you have, uh, if you're honest. <laughs> Uh, you make mistakes. Uh, 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 another one is to be illusioned, to accept one thing to be something else. Uh, uh, and he, Prabhupada gives the idea of what everybody does right now in our, our culture is the primary illusion is the misidentification of self with the material coverings, the body and the mind. Uh, the first teaching uh, of Vedanta is aham brahmasmi, uh, I am Brahman. Uh, that means I am spirit, and the corollary is I'm not matter, which means I'm not this body and I'm not this mind. Uh, but you tell it to, I remember when I was a new devotee, I talked to people, and they uh, tried to explain to the people, say, you trying to tell me I'm not me? <laughs> 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 So to have some actual experience of yourself as, as a spiritual being and not as this body and this mind takes some, some education. Uh, it means becoming deconditioned, you might say. A third defect, the uh, uh, cheating propensity, even though I'm an you know, I'm an ignorant fool, I won't, help, won't hesitate to tell people all kinds of things put myself up as an authority. 
people you you stop and ask somebody for directions many times they don't know but they'll give you directions anyway just because they don't want to be known to be not knowing so they, <laughs> they don't say I don't know <laughs> nobody wants to do it and then our our imperfect senses uh, senses limited and uh, imperfect so that those are the reasons given why that in our conditioned state we 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 cannot actually have any kind of reliable knowledge. And of course, many philosophers, independently of the Vedas, have figured this out. And then they just say, we, you know, just like Faust at the beginning of Goethe's play, all we can find out, I've studied all these things, and all I know is that we can know nothing. And then people become, become uh, complete skeptics, and cynical and nihilistic and so on but we seem to need to know something we have this desire to know uh, and uh, and as human beings most of us have this notion that uh, and I think it's intuitive in almost all of us that I'm, I'm you know, we, we, we find ourselves thrown into the world you know sometime around the age of two or three or something Suddenly, here I am. You know, I'm in this particular body. There's other people, and this is my family, of course, my brothers, my sisters, whatever. This is my family. There's other kids. They have other families. How did I get in this one, and why was there in that one? Why am I here? You know, it's like a mystery. The whole thing is like completely baffling. What does it mean to be here? How did I... And, and, what there's a, a kind of intense what for what's it for and if you try to articulate questions like that people will just put you off uh, but this this is this is this is just our, our our human consciousness has got this desire to know something about ourselves and think that, that um, I, there's something important I'm supposed to be doing and it seems like the career path laid out for us. We go to work, we work in a job for 25 years, we retire, we die. What? That's it? <laughs> That's all? They're supposed something else. <laughs> anyway. Um, so then, then Prabhupada goes on, you look on the second page, he, he says, Hindu is a foreign name. That's true. It doesn't. It, when it shows up in the Indian literature, it's because the, the the Arabs came and said those people that live on the other side of the Sindhu River, they're Hindus. There's no such word uh, originally in, in Sanskrit as as Hindu. Although they picked it up, and now we got Hindu twa, uh, Hinduness in, the, in the Indian politics, but. But he says our real, our real uh, identification is Varnashram. We are followers of this Varnashram Dharma. And what we practice is called Dharma. Uh, and Dharma comes from a Sanskrit word uh, to, to denote like just the essence of something. It's, it's, it's intrinsic nature. That's what Dharma is. The, the dharma of water is to be liquid. You know, it's not something imposed. It's my own, my own. It's the word that's often translated like as religion. 
people say Hindu Dharma, Christian Dharma, you know, this Dharma, you know. But Dharma is what is doesn't have any of those labels that you and the claim made that if something is actually your Dharma, it's your own eternal nature, your unchanging, unchanging nature, according to the ultimate Dharma. But then when they say Varnashram Dharma, is that scheme of life where there's the divisions of Varna uh, uh, and Ashrama. Now, this is controversial because the Varna system is a hierarchical class system, or caste as they, they like to say. Um, it, it is Prabhupada's contention uh, that, and a lot of people, that the uh, and what says in the Bhagavad Gita that your 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 varna, because uh, the, the varna is the division into four groups. That just like the human body has head, arms, belly, and legs as a natural components, human society has a head, the brahmanas, uh, who are the the brains, the guides those who, who can actually see the truth and bring it to bear on concrete activities, these are the, the, the brahmanas. Uh, uh, we call them priests sometimes, or philosophers, but they're, the, they're supposed to be the guides for society. Uh, they're the intellectuals, uh, but they know something. Most intellectuals either just fighting with each other so much or completely baffled by nihilism or skepticism or so on. They don't guide us anymore. Uh, but this is what the ideal, that's what human society is supposed to have. People who actually know what, what life is for and how to direct people toward that ultimate end. Those are the brahmanas. The, then kshatriyas, the protectors. Government, basically. Uh, uh, kshatriya means one who protects. Uh, 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 th that's like the arms and the legs, you know, your martial arts and, and so on. Then the, the, the Vaishas, uh, uh, agriculture, business, trade, uh, the wealth-creating group. And then uh, compared to the legs, Shudras, uh, laborers or workers. Uh, this is the natural order of society, and we tend to have it, whether we want it or not, uh, one way or another. Uh, 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 Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita that people belong to this because of guna and karma. Their inherent qualities, these are material qualities of body and mind, their guna, uh, and their karma, the aptitude for the work that they do doesn't say janma, birth. So that in India, after a while, it became hereditary. You can see how that tendency might be there. But, uh, and, uh, and that leads in Kali Yuga to a degeneration of society. Because on the other hand, people with skills are limited and boxed into something that's that way, way below their, their abilities. And you have people in high positions who aren't qualified whatsoever. Yeah. Um, please define your terms, Kali Yuga. Oh, this is the, yeah. 
Another thing that you'll notice uh, that's in this uh, introductory lecture is that Prabhupada does not believe in progress. Uh, uh, in the same way that we do. Uh, uh, we, we are in, this is Kali Yuga, uh, is there, according, according to the Vedas, history moves through cycles of four ages. Uh, Satya Yuga, uh, Trita Yuga, Dwarpa Yuga, and Kali Yuga. And we are in Kali Yuga. How long are we going to be in? 5,000 something years ago? It's been like all of recorded human history is pretty much Kali Yuga. And before uh, the Kali Yuga began, mm -hmm. humans were more advanced. Uh, and uh, we think of thing we we think that oh, like for example, this is before writing. Uh, but but the claim is made no writing was invented as a crutch when people began to lose their memories. It's not a sign of the advance of civilization. It's a sign of a decline. And in fact, even Plato complained about it, who was there a lot closer to the beginning. He complained about writing. You know, the, 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 the Homeric bards, the whole Iliad, the, uh, the, whole, the whole Odyssey would, could be uh, you know, recited from memory. And the Vedas were trans transmitted by memory. The, these texts were not written down originally. But they were by by they were by by people's memory, and there was a very very intense uh, effort to train people to remember things. And, and you notice that our memories are getting worse all along. Now we don't have to remember anything because we got hard drives, we <laughs> we got the internet, we got Google, we got Wikipedia. You know, there's there's no, nothing you have to remember anymore. You just look it up. Uh, so we are making progress, but from this point of view, so, uh, so, and, I, and I've, I've met I've, I've met once a professor of Sanskrit who was trained up in, in the original uh, uh, traditional way, and he was a, from a Brahmin class. So they had to recite the Rig Veda, and he could recite it syllable for syllable. First, he memorized it forward, and then he memorized it backwards. So every syllable had to be correct because to perform Vedic sacrifice, if you screwed up with a syllable, you could mess the whole thing up. So they would learn like this. And Sanskrit grammar the same way. If, if you look at Sanskrit grammar, I mean, the modern Indo-European philology or linguistics started in the uh, 19th century uh, when... Westerners discovered Sanskrit and they looked at Panini's grammar and they had no idea that a language could be analyzed like this and understood like this. Our alphabet is A, B, C, D. It's just a random string of, 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 of letters. Sanskrit starts like this. First the vowels. Uh, uh, e, E, U, U, Ri, Ri. You know, they're first. Then the consonants. The first group of consonants are the gutturals. Ka, ka, ga, ga, na. 
uh, with voiced and unvoiced. Then cha cha, and you move up until you get to the dentals. Papa, baba, ma. You know, it's like this. Somebody listened, saw how words were pronounced, saw where in the mouth they were articulated, and brilliant, just brilliant. And the whole Sanskrit grammar was put into sutras, condensation of information. The sutra meant that you could express a lot of information in the fewest number of syllables. Why that? So it would be easier to memorize. So in the Sanskrit schools, the little kids would sit there when they're very young, five years old, five, six years old. You know, you can't understand anything, but you can memorize everything. That's how you learn language. You grow up in a household where three languages are spoken, four languages are spoken. You'll grow up speaking them all and have them all sorted out, you know. Just try it at the age of 15 even, you know. You can't do it. So they start there, right? Right at the beginning. <laughs> and they, they would simply have the children memorize these, these just like parrots, you know. They would sit and just memorize the grammar in the form of sutras. Well, they couldn't understand anything, but they could memorize everything. They would they 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 would recite it in unison, like this described in the literature, like listening to frogs croaking and little children, yeah. You know. And then, a little older, you start to learn it, learn how to use it, and it's all but it's all in your head, no books necessary. And so this is Vedic culture. But then time goes, people's memories get worse, their, their, their lifespan shortens, and, and so on. And so this is, this is, we are in the age of Kali, and spiritual life, real spiritual discipline, very, very hard for people, and getting worse. Things are getting worse. And, uh, and Prabhupada announces at the beginning of his presentation of uh, Srimad Bhagavatam that this is a work meant for the re-spiritualization of the entire human society that there's something that can be done in Kali Yuga but it's not going to be done by Microsoft or Google or any of those people uh, anyway so this is Kali Yuga uh, and the, the, the hereditary class system is is now completely degraded uh, because of that, and uh, but these are the natural groups uh, according to people's tendency, according to the modes of material nature. One, one thing that that's taught in the Vedas is uh, they give you a way to look at the world. Uh, there's a natural cycle. We see that things are. Like the cycle of the seasons, springtime, things are being born, things are being created, then things last for a while, and things decay and fall apart, and then they, then, then uh, again, there's another creation, like a cycle of nature, of creation, maintenance, and destruction, creation, maintenance, and destruction. And when when nature is creative, things are being born and created and going on. Uh, Nature is said to be in Rajagun, the, the translated as mode of passion. When things are being maintained, it's Sattva Guna, mode of goodness. And then when things are being destroyed, it's Tamaguna, uh, mode of uh, ignorance. 
so this is this is the, the, the cycle. So people are also in those modes. Human society in the mode. The brahmanas are supposed to be in the mode of goodness. And there's a very description of exactly the symptoms and characteristics of people in the modes and how one can be trained. So anyway, the, the brahmanas, the, the intellectuals, uh, they are supposed to be in the mode of goodness. Mode of goodness means that consciousness is extremely alert and inquisitive, but detached. Uh, and Prabhupada writes in the Bhagavad Gita, he writes that in former times, the standard of advancement was the standard of the mode of goodness. Now the standard of advancement is the mode of passion. So the, mo- the mode of passion is characterized by longings, desires, sexual desires, like, you know, springtime. <laughs> everybody mates and mates, you know, uh, the birds and everybody. The, the, that's the uh, mode of passion. You know? and, and so consciousness in the mode of passion is alert but narrowly fixed on the objects of desire. And our standard of advancement is the standard of the mode of passion. Because in the mode of passion, one simply thinks that by satisfying the senses uh, that one will become happy. So it's born of, of endless desires and longings. The trouble with the mode of passion is that the result of the mode of passion is misery. Ultimately, you suffer. Whereas the result of the mode of goodness is knowledge. Mode of passion is misery. And as I said, we are advancing. Our idea of advancement is the mode of of passion. Economic development is like the... What what do they all meet about? You know, economic development. I mean, all. I mean, the leaders of the countries and the thinkers. The whole thing economic development. People do not go to college to learn. They get to go, go to college to get a job. Uh, to make a lot of money. This is the standard of the mode of passion. Uh, we're in for it if the Bhagavad Gita is right that the result of the mode of passion is misery. <laughs> that's, that, that's what uh, you'll see. The mode of ignorance uh, there you're clueless. Like Mr. Jones and Bob Dylan's song, you don't know what's going on. You're just clueless. You're just a chucklehead. And, and you get into something, but it's wrong, and you don't like that, and you change to that. and You come up with ideas and schemes, but they're all idiotic. <laughs> and then anyway, this is the, this is the, mo- the mode, of, mo- mode of ignorance. These are the, 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 th- the three modes of nature. Uh, and if you, if you learn to see that way... Uh, Things make a lot of sense of what's going on. Uh, what's going on? Uh, anyway, so the human society is supposed to have these groups. The people in mode of ignorance uh, uh, are not capable of independent action. They need to be taken, guided, and directed. The the, the Vaishas, they're the mercantile people. The, the, the kshatriyas, the protectors, and the brahmanas are all capable of independent action. But, but uh, the, the, the shudras are not. Now, it should not be hereditary. And uh, actually, 
I mean, it's really horrible when you think of a class system, you know, we don't want to see that anymore. But people just have these natures, and they should not be exploited. So, so people who are in the mode of ignorance, uh, actually they, they should live in a perfect socialist state. Uh, they should given work to do, so they have busy, and they should be taken care of. The, 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 your, your complete actual social status for, for, for those people. And they'll be quite, if they're actually taken care of and not exploited, if you have real vices and real, you know, if you have a real government that knows how to deal with people, those, those people would be, would be uh, actually satisfied according to their own natures. Um, but I, I, was, I was with, uh, with Prabhupada when he was in an airport and some reporters were there and they asked him, why have you come to the West? And he says, I've come to give you a brain. <laughs> he always liked to do this with reporters, by the way. I've come to give you... He said, your society is headless. <laughs> your society is headless. And then he explained this head, arm, belly, and leg things, you know. Then I've come to give you a brain. And then he said later on, talking to these reporters, he said, actually in your society... Everyone is a Shudra, and there are a few Vaishyas. Which is a conspiracy theory for you. That seems to be <laughs> gradually becoming a little more obvious, you know. Everyone is a Shudra. Uh, uh, because, uh, 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 actually, I mean, Kshatriyas means kings. I mean, we got rid of them a long time ago because they were totally unqualified. In fact, in fact our, our whole history of the Western world is a kind of a... I, th I think in the Middle Ages in Europe, there was something of a, a Varna system. Uh, the a hierarchical system was there. Uh, you, you, you had the, the, the Catholic Church, the priests were organized as the Roman Catholic Church in Europe. You know, they, they were the, supposedly the Brahmanas. Uh, the, the nobility were the kshatriyas, the bourgeoisie, the, the, the rising middle class, as they always say, the, 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 were, were the, the non-noble landowners and the businessmen and the traders, the, 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 the vaishas, and then there were the serfs or the peasants. These were, these were the shurjas. There was something like that. And what you see over on that history is a slow collapse. Uh, over time. First, there was, a, in Europe, there was a rebellion of the Vaishas. I mean, here, I learned this theory, by the way, and I sat down and I thought about what I knew. I, I you know, had, had a lot of college, graduate, graduate school, and I thought I was thinking a lot about European history. And when Prabhupada talked, introduced this, this, these, this Varna system and said it was natural, I looked around me and said, where is it? I don't see it. What is a reporter? You know, writer is that a is, is he a Brahmin? No, but what what where you know, being people who didn't fit into this this scheme. But then when I started to think about European history, then I could begin to understand it, and it clarified things for me, because what you had was a rebellion in Europe uh, 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 of the nobility against the Brahmanas. I think because the Brahmanas had be, the, the the priests had become rather corrupt. And because, unfortunately, the head of the Roman Catholic Church was also a king. <laughs> he was the king in a big chunk of Italy, the Pope. 
and some of the things that, because the, the Protestant Reformation was actually a rebellion uh, Martin Luther and others wanted to just reform the truth the church but it became a, a, a time that the German kings could take advantage of it and they, then you had state churches and Henry VIII did the same thing in England Got rid of all the pre and the the, the 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 church had tons of property all over Europe. And Brahmins, they're supposed to receive in charity, but they're supposed to give it to others. The church kept it. Uh, and, and so so uh, Henry Henry was able to seize these huge amounts of lands, shut down the monasteries and the convents, and distribute all this property to his allies. You know, and I mean that. that so actually, the Protestant Reformation was really a Vaisha, I mean a Kshatriya rebellion against the, the Brahmanas, and now they had the state churches and the priests were under their control. But then what happened? The, 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 who's supposed to keep the, the, the Kshatriyas under control are the Brahmins. Now they're not there. They're not regulating them. Because sometimes the Pope used to do that. You know, he used to, they used to like, you know, make kings subordinate to the, to, to the priests. This was no longer, they, they kept them on the right road even though they had so much power. They were gone. And so the nobility becomes quite corrupt and exploited. So the next thing is you have a revolution of the Vaishas, meanwhile they're gathering more and more money, uh, against the nobility. And this is epitomized in, in, in well, the American Revolution, actually, uh, and in the French Revolution. These are general social trends, but they were definitely things that happened, so that, that's what that was about. Diderot, the philosopher of the French Revolution, said, Mankind will never be free until the last king is strangled with the guts of the last priest. <laughs> That's <laughs> that was the mood. <laughs> and so then who did you have come into prominence? The Vaishas. Capitalism. Industrial development, you know, they, 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 they took the workers, man, moved them from the fields into the factories, and exploited them like anything. They had no protection from the Vaishas. The Vaishas now controlled all the wealth. Uh, uh, and uh, then there became another revolution of the Shudras against the Vaishas, which was epitomized in communism. Communist Revolution and Social Revolution. Now, when I, when I, fi I figured this out in the, in the late 70s when I became a devotee and I was trying to see if I could fit whatever I thought I knew into this scheme, and I thought, wow, what's going to happen now? Because the, we had the Cold War going on, a war between, between the capitalists and the communists, you know? And then, then when the Soviet Union went down, I, could, I knew what was going to happen. The first thing that's going to happen is going to be rough for workers all over the world. That's <laughs> exactly what because now the vices are back. Now that's globalism, and I like like you know we're talking now about the one percent of you know who own everything. This is what this is what's happening. The the vices have come come back big time. And stay tuned for what happens. 
we'll see. So any, anyway, these categories that, that, that my own experience was these categories I'd taken from books like this and uh, things like you know, the, the Varna system, which everybody is, you know, wow, we've got to get rid of that hierarchical system. Everybody gets exploited by everybody else and so on. And, and, and I used it, and I, I could not only understand Western history, I could even see a little bit of the future uh, because of it. So this is so that's why, at least for me, I, I, I'm, there's something to it that is natural. The only thing is, we simply, uh, in one sense, uh, what what Prabhupada is doing is now trying to give because of Lord Chaitanya, give everybody, since we're all sutras anyway, you might as well give everybody access to this if, they, if people can somehow by spiritual practice be raised to a qualification where you could actually receive knowledge. Uh, uh, because uh, Prabhupada is saying, look, this is knowledge. Right? Uh, it, 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 it is knowledge. Now, the, 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 according to the Vedic understanding, the universe was created by Brahma. Uh, he shows up in Platonic philosophy as the Demi-Orgos, the creator deity, uh, who fashioned the universe. Brahma did it because he was impregnated with the Vedas. He called Veda Garbha. He was impregnated with the Vedas. In other words, it is not Vedic knowledge didn't come out from somebody figuring out reality and producing the knowledge was first, and it was the blueprints and had the blueprints for creation. That's the that's the contention. That when the world was created, uh, this. Uh, uh, Narayan or Krishna uh, enlightened Brahma. He was the first Brahmana. Uh, and then on that basis, he made everything else. That, that's what, so Vedic knowledge is first. It's before the creation. It's, it's the basis on which the creation is made. And uh, by becoming... By following the requirements, just to get knowledge, you have, you have to get some requirements, even if it's technical knowledge. You know, you have to have, you have to pass tests, you have to have skills in mathematics, you have to, you know, the, the qualification is there. And either you have the talents for something, or you don't have the talents for something. So to some extent it can be learned, and some people, you know, this, this, is, this is the level that, that, that we can function on. Um, so, so, what... What, what people will now call spiritual knowledge, they don't believe it's knowledge, you know, they, they, but it's actually, it, 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 it's direct perception of the, the, the inner workings of the universe. This is the knowledge that the technicians that made the universe used to make it. And, and so if, if, if the uh, Vedas are codes, you know, these are the, 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 the operating codes, <laughs> if you compare with, 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 uh, with a programming or computer, this is, this is like the, the fundamental programming language and thing by, by which the universe is, 
is running. And the the point of the the, the Vedas then is it's knowledge. It's knowledge, and the instructions we have is how do we become qualified to be able to directly perceive the knowledge itself. Because there are claims made. The first claim, I am a spirit soul, I'm not the body. Uh, that's just a guide for action. It's other, if I just say it, it's just like oh, I treat it as dogma. But if it's a guide for action, then what, what makes me not experience myself as a spiritual being, what makes me experience myself as this body, well, the answers are there, and what do we do to rectify it? Uh, and to, first of all, raise ourselves to the mode of goodness. Because one thing that's stated in the Bhagavad Gita, understanding uh, the, the, the uh, introduction, uh, it's sort of the introduction to, to the whole process of, uh, of knowledge, first thing we understand is that knowledge depends upon sattva upon goodness. And then there's something beyond that. There's Vishuddha Sattva, purified goodness. And then in that state, things that people would call revelation just become direct perception. It says in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, this knowledge gives direct perception. Pratyaksha avagamam dharmam. The word is dharma, and what is ourself is, the word he uses the word is pratyaksha means right in front of the eyes. It gives direct perception. So, you know, people will say that, okay, yeah, over here in this university, over there, they have, they have knowledge, and here I'm from the Hare Krishna Temple. We have faith, you know. Uh, this is science, this is religion. But Prabhupada is knocking down that distinction. All processes of knowledge begin in faith. You go to any classroom and sit down, some character you've never seen before in the life is going to sit down and start telling you about all kinds of really esoteric things like atoms, protons, neutrons, muons, gluons, you know, all these. Not, not only things that you can't see, but that are in principle unseeable. And you believe it, you write it all down, you learn it, you know. Why? Because you have faith. Well, this is a, you know, uh, authorized university, this professor has the qualification to the class, so on, you know, everybody accepts it. So you, you, have, you, have, you have faith. If you challenge him, okay, look, you're telling me about all these things that I don't know. Uh, uh, do I just believe it? No, 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 we have experiments. Yeah, we have, we, we have cyclotron, we have all these experiments, we can, we, can, we can show these things. Oh, can I do that? Yeah, you can. Okay, let me do it. Well, wait a minute. Well, you can't really do the experiments until at least you're in the third year of graduate school. You have to know the science first before you can do it. You've got to wait that long. Uh, so, I mean, it's just it's this characteristic of any process of knowledge that, that, that to become somewhat adept in it takes a little time. Uh, so, anyway, this is Prabhupada's... Uh, uh, idea about the, the Vedic adjunction, uh, Shabda, uh, he said the Vedas are not compilation of human knowledge on page 4, Vedic knowledge comes from the spiritual world. 
Yeah, but it doesn't mean that it's not science. Science means, yeah, you, you may accept it in the beginning, but in the end you are confirming it by your own experience. It works. If you want it. I mean, there's a lot of people, like if, if, if we really had a society in the mode of goodness, there'd be a lot of people against it. First of all, the whole animal slaughter would be finished. The fast food industry would be finished. <laughs> you know? In fact, it would look like uh, there a lot of economic activity would, would be over with. Uh, anyway, that's a whole other thing, but it would be very hard for people. To, they would not be against. Uh, I always imagine that if the Krishna consciousness movement actually gained the big followers, our first big enemies will be evangelical Christians who run the slaughterhouses. <laughs> that would be the first people that would be you know, <laughs> against it. So, so it would be uh, uh, controversial. Uh, 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 yeah. Prabhupada says here on page 5 there's three kinds of evidence pratyaksha, anumana and shabda uh, pratyaksha direct evidence now when we have direct evidence on an empirical level just on material perception it's quite unreliable we're often mistaken about things we, we, we only know a little bit. We're really almost blind about what's going on in the world. We have, yeah, just our capacity to absorb information is, is, is somewhat limited, and a lot of it's wrong, and so on. So this is this is just pratyaksha, direct this material perception because uh, of our imperfect senses and, and so on. Anumana, the inductive uh, uh, knowledge. Anumana means inference. Uh, uh, and and uh, by, but, but there's two kinds of deductive and inductive reasoning. Inductive means uh, I count. Crow one is a blackbird. Crow two is a blackbird. Crow three is a blackbird. Crow four, you know, I, I can, after a while I can say all crows are black. And then there comes the green crow. Even, even if all your premises are true, there's no certainty that the, the conclusion will be true. This is called inductive reasoning. And there, therefore, uh, it's not very, very good. Deduction is better. If the premises are true, then it's sure and certain that the conclusion is true. The, the, the textbook example of a deductive argument is all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. But you can always deny it, just deny one of the premises. What, what a deductive argument really shows you is the price you have to pay for denying the conclusion. I don't like the idea that I'm mortal. I say, how do you know I'm a man? <laughs> Maybe I'm a god. Or how do you know I'm an immortal? There's a, you know, you Man one is mortal. Man two is mortal. <laughs> you know, you're back where you came from. So this is the the problem with inference. But he says here, Vedic knowledge is shabda pramana, that it it, 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 it can be trusted because uh, it, it is it is heard by oral reception. You hear from authorities. Uh, 
uh, and uh, uh, so as far as getting spiritual knowledge, you have to have somebody who's who properly heard it and properly will probably use the word realized. When he says realized knowledge, that's vijnana. The word jnana means knowledge in Sanskrit, uh, uh, and then vijnana means experience knowledge. If in modern Sanskrit use of Sanskrit, they want to translate the Western word science into Sanskrit, they use vijnana, uh, realized, experienced, ascertained knowledge. Uh, uh, so Prabhupada is making the case here that we the place to start, therefore. This is an introduction to Isha Upanishad. How you should take this Isha Upanishad? We shouldn't read it like a you know uh, anthropologist or a academic, a scripture of the Hindu religion. No, this is this is uh, uh, Vedic knowledge. And then he then he concludes this introduction. Well, it goes on a few more pages by talking about what's beyond the material world. We've just been talking about the material world, but there is, as he says here, the top of page six, there is another nature. This is information that comes from the Vedas. Right now, that, that spiritual world is beyond our knowledge. Uh, when we, we try to understand it, uh, those who try to understand this, Prabhupada gives the name transcendentalists. You know, they, they want to go beyond, to transcend. And this, the Vedas give information about the, what's beyond. That the, there is a, a, a ultimate source of everything. The Vedanta Sutra starts, starts out by saying, well first, atato brahmagignasa. Now we will have the inquiry into Brahman. Brahman meaning the great, the, the ultimate truth, the absolute truth. Tattva Brahma Gignasa, the second sutra, Janmadasiyataha, that from which comes all this, the world, from which the world comes. Uh, and there's an etc. in there, so from which proceeds the creation, maintenance, and destruction of the world. So that is there before the world. And it's there after the world. This is the, this is what we're inquiring into. How will you know anything about that? Uh, uh, this is Brahman. And according to the Vedas, this Brahman uh, is manifested in three features. First, as Brahman, the imp- impersonal realization. Uh, this is this is what Shankarites and others aim at, targeting it at. When, when, and, and if I ascend, if I, if I try to understand the absolute truth, any thinker, if I'm even not spiritual to begin with, I'll start to, I start to reach a kind of limit to my knowledge. There's a sense that there's something further I cannot get there. That is the negation of everything material. Uh, and something is out there. It's big, uh, wonderful, but but my, my language won't go there. My language is rooted in this material world. At, and, and so you find people like Schrodinger and, and people who are like the early atomic physicists, they got interested in, in Vedic philosophy, Oppenheimer, 
was reading the Bhagavad Gita. Because of that, just because of that, trying to push the limits of material knowledge, they would come to this kind of intuition that there's there's some unified thing at the basis of everything. Or if you start to find out where the Big Bang came from, uh, uh, well, there was a like a little thing and it exploded, but that little thing was infinitesimal in size and infinite in mass, and it wasn't that it was in space but contained space. Then you're whoa, uh, where did that thing come from? You know, and how, what, why did it go? You know, you you start inquiring, you realize it's. You get the strong intuition that something is there, it's something big, it's, and it's beyond all my reasoning and categories, it's the negation of all my discursive thought. And this is the Brahman, which is described negatively. Uh, and th- this is called uh, 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 the philosophy of negation, neti neti, not this, not that, net this, not that, net this, not that. Uh, it's even it's even in, in, in Western tradition what they call apophatic the the thinking of the apophatic theology the theology of negation that that when you try to think about God you know all your material th- ideas go away and, and and you're just left with something big but you can't say anything about it because anything you say would limit what's unlimited well, that's that's Brahman that's entry level. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's one aspect only of, of of the absolute truth is Brahman. It's there. Brahman is there, but it's a kind of abstract realization. Then the yogis follow the strictly follow the Pantanjali or similar uh, uh, yoga system. They realize this this the Paramatma in the, in the heart that in my body in this Anahata Chakra there's two of us, not just one. Uh, 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 and that, that second thing I'm the Atma but this is the Paramatma this is the super soul and from that super soul I can get a guidance and direction and that every living thing is accompanied by the, by the Paramatma with every Atma there's a Paramatma so this is Paramatma uh, realization and then Bhagavan which Prabhupada always translates as the supreme personality of Godhead uh, Bhagavan. One who possesses Vaan is possesses Bhaga means all opulences, wealth, strength, fame, beauty, knowledge, and renunciation. These are considered to be really things that, if anyone has got that got it, they they're attractive. If you're rich, you got friends, and nobody's your friend when you're down and out. Nobody knows you when you're down and out. Right? Uh, strength. Like Arnold Schwarzenegger or whatever, or, uh, you know, Washington D.C. is full of these little troll-like men who are very sexy because they have a lot of power. <laughs> power, <laughs> power is attractive. Wealth, strength, fame. Yeah, just famous for being famous will do it. You know, that makes persons. As soon as somebody famous shows up, there's a crowd, right? Think fame. Beauty, that's obvious. Knowledge, less obvious, but it's there, you know. You got a lot of knowledge, you, people want to employ you and whatever. And then one that we're not familiar with very much is renunciation. Uh, although 
if somebody has a lot of these good things and is not attached to them, that becomes quite stunning, actually, to, to see that. Uh, you don't see it very much nowadays. So this is Bhagavan. Uh, the, the, the personal feature of the Absolute Truth. And some of this will be explaining how, it, how the Absolute Truth can have three features like this and how, 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 how to leave out Bhagavad or to leave out Paramatma or to leave out Brahman is incomplete. And the Prabhupada will deal with this in the... Uh, but I really used a lot of time there when I didn't get... <laughs> Perhaps we can have some Q&A and then we'll see how much time we have. Okay, yeah, I'm sorry about that. Birth, yeah. Uh, verse. yeah. You know, the, the, this, for me, it's almost hard to explain one part of it without explaining all of it. It's a kind of a global system, you know, that every, everything meshes together with everything else. So I'm, uh, I'm sorry about that. Anyway, that's an introduction to the introduction. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, questions, comments? Uh, that was actually a lot of information, but a very nice elaboration on uh, the uh, introduction to the Upanishad. So, and I know some people were taking notes. Um, so, I'm wondering if anyone has any. Uh, yeah, or questions. objections, you know. Or, or objections, you, yes. Yeah, I mean, really. I don't have an objection, but I do have a, a, a request for clarification. Yeah, sure. Okay. Is, um, you know, I, I understand the um, classes. Those make those make sense to me. I mean, mm -hmm. yeah, we see that everywhere. Just people have different aptitudes and mm -hmm. different mm -hmm. personalities, and you know, there's no sense of artificially imposing these other things on them. But um, on page nine, where he's talking about the the Vedas and like you know, dividing the Vedas and giving them to people to read. Mm -hmm. He says, um, he then thought of the less intelligent class of men. Sri, Shudra, and Dvijabandhu. Yeah. yeah, and then he said, and then he considered the woman class and the Sudra class and the Dvijabandhu. And I thought, oh, what's the woman class? Yeah, yeah. At, like, is the woman not class, like, not necessarily part of the Brahmanas or Shudras or Chatriyas or. Um, yeah, they, 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 here, this is an aspect that doesn't fit very well with contemporary society, and 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 for for, for uh, some uh, legitimate reasons. But but the the um, the idea was uh, here that 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 women were in a kind of special category because. You have to think back before industrial civilization. You know, I mean, really, 
uh, in some ways, industrialization is, is a hypertrophy and overdevelopment of the mode of passion. And uh, part, part of that industrialization, which comes together with it, is that uh, the differentiation between the sexes or genders or whatever you want to call it is, is, is blurred out now. Uh, and we've discovered it's not that women can do just as well as men almost everywhere uh, that, that have the opportunity to do it. I, uh, I wouldn't, the fact is they can. In fact, a lot better in some cases. But, but in, 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 in a Vedic society, which is really the economic basis was, was agriculture. Uh, it was a, an agrarian society. And in the agrarian society, uh, um, the family family is the unit of production, not just of consumption, and children are an asset. So one thing that happens when countries industrialize, I had a demographics course once in college, so I'd learned about this way before anybody else did, because all the professors knew it. When countries industrialize, uh, what, ha what happens is that uh, th there's a population explosion to begin with. And that's because, at least in Europe, there was public health measures and the infant mortality rate went way down. And then the birth rate followed way down. And so you had a low birth rate. So you can see that in, in industrial companies, uh, countries uh, that, that that the birth rate is very very low. Uh, people stop having children, uh, and the reason is that that in an agrarian economy, the children are an asset. First of all, they're your workforce. Uh, the family is the unit of production. They're your, they're your workforce. Uh, and there are your social security and your old age insurance and all those other kind of things and, and the families were together you know. but industrialization means the family unit breaks apart gradually the, what we used to call the extended family you know now it's the nuclear family and now it's the sub-nuclear family uh, and all kinds of other things are going on this is all an art, artifact uh, of, of industrial civilization uh, the fact of the matter is, uh, and we have separated sex from reproduction almost completely now. Uh, uh, I remember, remember once when I was in a gas station getting a car fixed with a flat tire. The gas station was, this was like 20 years ago, but the gas station was all being run by guys from Guatemala or something, you know. So I'm sitting there waiting to fix the car, and they got some girly magazines sitting right there. And I look at this thing, and, and it's in Spanish. And there are these women, you know, in, in lascivious poses. Uh, and the first thing I noticed is they were, from my perspective, really fat. <laughs> I mean, huge breasts, huge hips, <laughs> like really fat. And they're leaning forward, you know, from the, what Spanish I knew I could read. They're, they're, they have captions where they're saying things. They're saying, I want to have your baby. 
I want mm-hmm. to bear your sons. And I thought, my God, is this what, you know, what kind of, <laughs> come on, is this, you know? And then I realized these people are still, you know, rooted in a pre-industrial uh, culture. And they haven't made this separation between uh, sex. And so th- this is like the turn-on, you know, that, <laughs> for, for, for these kind of people. And when they come to America, we say, oh, they're so ignorant. How to look at that big family. How are they going to put them through college? You know, I mean, like, you know, basically you're going to have one kid and, you know, two kids at the most. That's extravagant. That's so expensive. You spend, you know, $350,000 just to get them up to high school, through high school, then they got to go to college, and what's your return on your investment? Well, you maybe get a birthday card or something. You know, I don't know. But there, for these people, you know, they're still rooted in this, this the, the big family, and you know, all this other kind of thing. So the role of women has changed because of this kind of situation. Uh, uh, and uh, so, so then there was an idea that women should be protected and kept kind of innocent because. They would specialize in nurturing and taking care of children and bringing up children. And, uh, you know, a, a, a woman can be a policeman or a jet pilot in, 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 in the Air Force, but they get kind of tough. <laughs> and maybe the other idea was here's women should specialize in, in, in the nurturing, affectionate qualities, and men should specialize in protection. Uh, and you have a, spe- a speciality, so it wouldn't be thought that 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 women were like uh, 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 the same as men, but w- would be appropriately educated according to whatever level. We find in the in the Vedas that yeah, uh, the the. Women who are uh, uh, kshatriya women turned out to be pretty good with weapons sometimes, and and and, uh, and uh, Vaishya women are very good at doing business. So you know the the, the Brahmanical women could could teach all these things. So they participated in the same ac- activities uh, uh, in, in that way. So the the question the question we have to ask ourselves: What is the future of industrial society? Where has our industrial society taken us now? Now that the whole world has become industrialized, what does it look like? And I have a feeling, I have a conviction actually, we're going to have to return to having the production of food and energy as local as possible. And we might return also to to the, the family as a unit of production. And that might be the way forward. I don't doesn't mean we won't have technology, but it will now be appropriate to this kind of idea where we are not going to have this gigantic global uh, system, you know, where where you know parts are made in China, brought here, assembled in Mexico, sent to America to be sold, and all that other kind of stuff. You know. That might just not be sustainable. And one thing we see in the literature that Prabhupada has given us is a kind of vision of a future like that. And especially, I have to say, that 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 the system of bhakti yoga, 
is is such that uh, it's meant for, and it actually was part of the Vaishnava tradition, the theistic Vedanta, that it was so powerful that people who otherwise would not be qualified, such as the Sri Sudra, Dijabandu, whatever else, we're all, you know, everyone is a Sudra. We're all the unworthy people of the lower classes, you know, it, we're like we're kind of equal because we're all, we're all <laughs> bottomed out, you know. That these people who are no, would normally, I mean, what's an untouchable? I'll tell you what an untouchable is. Anybody born outside of India is an untouchable, is an aborigines, <laughs> you might say. You know, we are, we are like completely unqualified uh, uh, by, by the sort of standards of the, the ancient days. But we can practice it because the system of bhakti yoga is powerful enough that's the system of yoga where you engage the senses instead of trying to just suppress them or put them aside. And that, that you can, and in bhakti yoga, you can integrate it with your, your, the rest of your life. It's not just something you do on the side. Uh, if you want to, if you actually want to practice astanga yoga, what's the first direction? I mean, pretty much you go to the forest, you go to the wilderness. Good luck. Uh, and even finding the wilderness, you know. I mean, you really, I mean, to, 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 to practice astanga yoga, you have to be like a kind of Olympic athlete of the spirit to really do the thing right. You can't even do it in cities. So what's adaptable for the modern urban environment and the society we're living in is, is, is bhakti yoga. And for bhakti yoga, we're all equally qualified because we're all equally unqualified for whatever reason. And so it does not discriminate uh, between uh, and and you know the the the, the propagation of, of the chanting of the Hare Krishna mantra and of Sankirtan. One one of, of, of Chaitanya, whose dates are fourteen eighty six, fifteen thirty three. At that time, he was from a Brahminical family. One of his major followers was actually born a Muslim, and really got into trouble with his. <laughs> because he, be, he began to practice chanting Hare Krishna, you know. And so right away there was a lot of trans, transgressions of these sort of social boundaries. And then early on women became gurus, big spiritual leaders in, 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 uh, in Lord Chaitanya's society. So it's, 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 uh, it doesn't follow, you know, the trying to go back to, to Satya Yuga or whatever it was like back then. Almost unimaginable these, these earlier ages uh, to us. I have a question. Yeah. The assumption is the earlier ages were better? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like uh, how early? <laughs> but we have no historical record. If uh, the invention of writing is a sign of decline of civilization, we, we wouldn't have a written record. It would be gone. Uh, you know, you have to invest. I mean, we really have another. We, you know, we have the up from the apes history, which is a construction because because actually it does ignore a lot of evidence. 
there's a book by one of my colleagues called Forbidden Archaeology, if you want to want to see some of it. But but uh, but uh, this this is this is. Uh, uh, according to to the, these times when there was supposed to be nothing but but you know half ape half human kind of people you know uh, paleolithic human beings who'd had no culture this has got a different history it, it, it really does and, and uh, uh, there's evidence for this different kind of history but people don't know how to digest it and it's sort of this is how science works you know you got a hypothesis and it works for explaining things to a certain degree. Things don't fit that hypothesis. Oh, it's an anomaly. You put it in the anomaly closet. And it goes in the anomaly closet until finally, you know, the door breaks down and you have to deal with it. So there's a, there's a, a number of anomaly closets that are filled up. Uh, and this is, this is uh, one of them, uh, that, uh, that you have to deal with the fact that... that, that According to according to the Vedas, there's a long, long, long prehistory of, of human uh, inhabitation uh, that uh, an advanced civilization that, that we don't have any record of, and probably very few traces. If people typically would would uh, the method of, of disposing of dead bodies was cremation, you wouldn't see a lot of skeletons. Anyway, um, that's a big topic. Did, did you have an elaboration on your question? Because um, I thought there may have been more to it than... I'm not sure what it is, but okay. you can go ahead. Um, just a comment. Um, just so that um, everyone is, is aware that uh, this idea uh, of the anomaly closet is not something specific to bhakti yoga. Um, it's actually specific to science. Uh, this is a book uh, called The Structure of Scientific, scientific Revolutions. Yeah, yeah. Thomas Kuhn, yeah. Yeah, and, and this was written in 1960. Um, and Thomas Kuhn... Which is when I read it, but basically. Well, I read it in 63, actually. Uh, <laughs> yeah. First year, uh, second year in college. <laughs> it's uh, a, a, a book. Uh, Kuhn is a uh, uh, philosopher of science and a historian of science. And what he talks about uh, is the idea that uh, revolutions in science are not done by normal science. That normal science is about working out the problems of an existing paradigm or existing dominant theory that everybody accepts. And then what happens is the anomaly closet gets so full that somebody opens the door and the anomalies all fall out and they some poor person then has to be Galileo and say these theories just don't explain the, the evidence that we have anymore and we have to come up with something new and whoever is the first one to do that always gets in a great deal of trouble. Um, yeah, see it will work so far but there's things that don't work for but it worked good for this so we'll just keep it and keep on going until finally you can't ignore it. Right? Yeah. It's, anyway, so this then there's a, a crisis and there's a revolution. Then, it, then he, he coined this term the paradigm shift which has been sort of more widespread now. But the paradigm shift is actually a, a revolution because in a revolutionary period, there is no law and order. It's very disturbing. There is no normal science anymore. Yeah. Isn't that just your three... Um, I mean, maintenance is we've got these theories, they're working, we're going to put the anomalies in a closet. That's your period of maintenance. Then the closet opens up and... 
if there's that destruction. destruction right, right, and right. then there's creation of what do we do with this? So, well, this that, happened, but I don't. We don't know what if it moves in a cycle or not. But, 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 but see, but before Kuhn did his investigation, as in his, and he looked at science as a, as a social enterprise. I, I, I was in I was in uh, undergraduate at the University of Pennsylvania, and I was a philosophy major. And when this book was there, man, they hated it. Most of my philosophy because they were like, really, science is knowledge. You know, they were, that was the main thing. There it was apologetics for, for for science, and they hated this book. Uh, 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 but you know, it, it, they weren't able to really uh, deal deal with it very well. Because there was an idea, this progress, you know, that, that we just it's smooth. It says that we have the scientific method, and there'll be this general accumulation of knowledge, and we'll we'll just go on and on and on until we found the whole truth. And he found out there were these disruptive periods, the Copernicus Revolution, uh, the Galileo uh, Revolution, and the. the, the and so on, where you had a whole, it's almost like you look, you know, there was phlogiston, a combustion took place with this stuff called phlogiston. And then from outside normal science, this guy Dalton was a meteorologist or something, he came up with the idea of this atomic theory. Uh, and you, you, suddenly you're in a universe that has atoms. Oh, had, nobody had seen Adam, but the idea, you know, as, as a sort of superstructure, seemed to explain things. So they posited the existence of these unseeable, unknown little entities called atoms, you know. And that was fruitful, so they're going on with it. Believe me, it's whatever we know now is wrong. <laughs> <Don't be there. laughs> we're, we're actually about to, to hit one of these periods of destruction and, and there's actually a part of the scientific community I've been reading about recently that is uh, uh, dedicated to uh, destruction management. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because uh, the Genome Project, you've all heard of the Genome Project? So it's been very successful, but one of the problems that have, has arisen as a result of studying life at the level of the genome is they now know that evolution by natural selection does not actually account for evolutionary activity. It's actually something, some other kind of thing that isn't, nat I don't remember the technical term for it, but it's not natural selection. It, natural, the idea of natural selection accounts for like a relatively small percentage. I, I'm glad you mentioned evolution. You know, um, uh, this, this is like, this is, this is uh, like, uh, this, is our, this is part of our mythology. It's the progressive mythology, you know, that we have evolution and we're just evolving on and on and on and on. But it's actually wrong. I mean, it's, it, or it's only partially right. Now, now when, when, when I became a devotee, I realized that, that if uh, Prabhupada is right, the theory of evolution is wrong. I just didn't want to deal with that too much, you know, because... Uh, uh, and then, then I was, I was still in graduate school, and I became a devotee. And I had a doctoral dissertation to write, and I wrote to Prabhupada. If he had any ideas, he said, "Well, if you like, you could defeat Darwin." And I thought, "My God, <laughs> you know, defeat Darwin." Uh, 
Uh, and I was in a state of shock because a part of my youth, I grew up in Texas and Oklahoma, and I knew these people who didn't believe in Darwin. And I thought, my God, does this mean if I'm a Hare Krishna, I have to become like a big, stupid, neon Jesus saves sign? Like, like these people, you know? I mean, like, I was in shock. And then I thought of, then the second thing was, how would you defeat Darwin? You know, I mean, that was the other thing. So, so then, then I, uh, then I thought about it. Well, yeah, if, you know, if, if, if this is how Brahma created the universe, and the, he's Darwin is wrong, but how could you possibly think, you know, deal with it? How could you get a handle on it? So then I met a, a brand new devotee uh, who was in ISKCON. I didn't really know what to do with him because he just gotten a PhD in mathematics from Cornell. <laughs> and he showed up at my temple visiting, and I and I show when I saw what you know that he was a mathematician uh, with a PhD. I showed him this letter I had from Prabhupada about defeating Dharma. And I said, "You don't have any idea how you could do that." And he says to me, "He says, yeah, he's right. Darwin is wrong." He said, "Actually, I knew that before I became a devotee." And then he says, "Actually." Most mathematicians know that, but they don't say anything because it upsets the biologist so much. <laughs> so, then he proceeded, or using information theory and stuff that was a little bit over my head, to show me, you know, how that actually it just doesn't work out. It just doesn't happen. And in fact, in the early '70s, there was actually a conference at University of Pennsylvania Whistler Institute called Mathematical Challenges to Darwin's Theory of Evolution. And they're still there. And what happened is that some Christians in America, there was this kind of cultural war, you know, and the Christian right was trying to get... This uh, Christian creationism accepted as a science in the schools, based on the Bible and that the Earth was five thousand years old and all this other stuff, and they failed because it was Bible-based. And then they grabbed some of these people who were teaching this idea of intelligent design, which, which, which was the kind of thing that Sadhguru was talking about. That there has to be, you can't have, you can't if if. if well, let me go back a little bit. There, there, there was a report I read about a conference in the early 80s, I think, a uh, cosmology conference. And somebody said, somebody gave a paper there that if the initial conditions of the universe were entirely at random, then the amount of time that they estimate the age of the universe to be, there's not nearly enough time by random changes for order to have arisen, the order that we have to have arisen. just doesn't work out mathematically, which is what Sadhguru told me a decade earlier. doesn't work. So this, this conference, they had to talk about... So this the person who gave this paper proposed that the initial condition of the universe was not completely random. There was, at the very beginning, some order. So then there was a debate... The, the stacked decked people <laughs> and they were shuffled deck people they had 
And their objection is, because if, if the initial conditions, there was some order to begin with, if the deck was stacked, how did it get stacked? And then somebody said, somebody said, brought in the name God, the traditional deck stacker. I actually mentioned that name. And the article, this was a report in Science News, said, but most scientists prefer not to take that cop-out route. Hmm. Now, why is it a cop-out? It's a cop-out because the rules of the game are that you don't bring in God. It's, it's, it's not a conclusion, it's initial condition, it's a ground rule. Because the connotation of God is whatever it may be, all he has to do is stack the deck, you know. But then it's a crack; they don't want to open even open that crack up. Because our society and culture has said those yeah, who yeah, say I believe exactly. in God don't ask. But the point questions. is, the deck is stacked. You know, something you just can't explain it. You know, it's the rule. It's the rule of science. Who sets rules and who decides who the rules are? I mean, is that a rational process, or what kind of... This is where you get into Thomas Kuhn territory. What are the rules? Who sets the rules? How do you do it? Science has rules. If I see people playing tennis, and I say to them, hey man, you can have a, get that ball the other side a whole lot easier, you can get rid of that net. They said, no, that's a rule of the game. <laughs> so the rule of science is God isn't allowed, that's all. So it doesn't prove there's no God. It just wants to see if we disallow, how far can we get? Well, that's okay. You can play that. You know, that's for fine. But to actually define things. So, so the, the fact of the matter is that science has not proven that there is no God. It's just, the, it's just the, the, the rules of the game. But it won't work. Something is there. Something is there. And, 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 it, and it, like my first fear, well, oh my God, if there's a God, does it mean I have to become like a, a fanatic? Or do I have to become like the Christian believers I grew up with around, around me? <laughs> you know, I, I think of Krishna consciousness, at least, as an alternative, although I, we've got our fanatics too, but anyway, that's another story. <laughs> yeah, you, you're right in that. You know the uh, division between you know the secular division says that as soon as you step into God, then you're in the realm of faith, and faith is separate from knowledge, and therefore we you know have to keep that division. Otherwise, and that's, it's not, that's why the, yeah, th that's why I wanted to start that there is no such clean division. There's rules for knowledge, and those knowledge have to do things. With, with, with the basic principles, even Astanga Yoga has the same basic regular principles we have. I mean, people want to ignore the Brahmacharya bit and stuff like that, but it's there because these are these these are not just about morality. This there's about it's about knowledge. That knowledge depends upon sattva, upon upon goodness. And if you want to progress in knowledge, this this is how you do it. So uh, this is a nice wind-up, at least for this uh, portion of the program, uh, the idea of establishing, establishing the Sri Upanishad as integrated uh, faith and knowledge, and that there actually is a division. Um, in Sanskrit, in the, the way the grammatical rules work for translating into English, a lot of times the very last word in Sanskrit 
becomes the first word in a fluent English translation. Um, but one way that what we've just done is just like Sanskrit is uh, what should have come all the way at the very beginning will now come at the end. Uh, because uh, I didn't actually introduce you. Which is actually, which is actually what I should have done. Uh, so in the interest of defining your terms, uh, Ravindra Saruprabhu mentions several times you know, when he became a devotee, what does that mean? Well, that means uh, when he became a, a bhakti yogi, yogi uh, studying directly uh, under uh, his guru, the author of the Sri Upanishad, uh, Srila Prabhupada, uh, which uh, occurred in 1970 or thereabouts. Yeah, well, I encountered devotees uh, a few years seriously. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, Ravindra Sarup actually uh, one of the reasons this uh, that uh, um, he uh, has been able to present you with uh, such a uh, deep presentation of the introduction to this book uh, is because uh, he was studying philosophy at the University of Pennsylvania, followed by uh, a master's and a PhD in religion at uh, Temple University in uh, Philadelphia, and that's where he's uh, been uh, for the past, uh, what, like 40 years now? In Philadelphia, yeah. In Philadelphia. Um, as, I, as I recall, uh, uh, Ravindra Saru uh, approached his uh, professors uh, at uh, the University of Pennsylvania when he was studying philosophy and told the philosophy professors he was interested in finding the truth and they said you need to switch to religion. Uh, <laughs> so hence uh, the, uh, the... It was like a very naive, you know, change, look change for the truth. Program. You know? <laughs> so anyway, so, naivete. <laughs> so we're very fortunate after having uh, been teaching and practicing of uh, bhakti and, and being a uh, uh, member uh, of the International Society for Krishna Consciousness as a uh, temple president and uh, uh, governing body commissioner, uh, and also uh, as a, a guru. Uh, Ravindra Sarup uh, uh, has disciples in a formal uh, guru-disciple relationship. Uh, and uh, now we're very fortunate uh, that by Krishna's arrangement, he is here in the Washington, uh, D.C. area. Uh, living in Potomac, just a stone's throw away, and so uh, we're very happy that you were able to come and, and yeah, spend, spend this, this time with us.